Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I would say happy Monday, but the world is burning or at least looking like it's falling apart. Uh, we're joined by historian Kevin Cruz. Uh, by the way, by the way, welcome back, Kevin. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, when I first invited you on, I didn't think we'd be talking about the fall of Afghanistan quite this early, but uh, I don't know what else we could talk about today. Yeah. yeah. I, I, as I told you before we started, I am not an expert in Afghanistan. I don't claim to be. But uh, I know when a picture and an image is horrific and what's happening here is a truly epic disaster for the ages uh, in, in terms of logistics, military collapse, uh, policy. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote this morning, this is going to leave a, a, a long lasting stain on the Biden presidency. Uh, and of course, there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. These debates, just looking at it from an historical point of view, um, these debates, who lost China, who lost Iran, who lost Vietnam, who lost Afghanistan, I mean, they, they leave a hangover for a long time in American politics, don't they? They do. They do. And and I mean, th there's something to say about the, the way in which we frame that, that, you know, the, we in the United States are responsible for finding and keeping and holding these places. And and, uh, and, and we are the center of things and, and not them. But it does dominate uh, our political understanding. There certainly was a, a hangover from all of those uh, instances. And we'll, we'll have to see what this one looks like. Yeah, th that's that's the big question that I have is. I think this looks awful um, for, for, for Joe Biden. I mean, look, he inherited it a lot. I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that he is not wholly, totally, solely responsible for all of this. In many ways, this is a Trump-Biden joint project. You never thought you'd actually say that. Right. Uh, on the other hand, this happens on his watch. And uh, it is happening because of specific decisions that he made, advice he ignored. And the scenes are just awful. I, so I... You know, America has just checked out from Afghanistan a long time ago. We just went to the mall, right, as opposed to going to, to war. Mm -hmm. So do you have any sense? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm reading the coverage, then, and most of the commentary is brutal. But, you know, as we wait for the polls, public opinion polls would suggest that Americans had already, had already bailed on Afghanistan. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and I think that you've given a reason. Now that they bailed, they were never told to buy in. Right. I mean, this was the, as you noted, the, the, the kind of the central message uh, that the Bush administration had 20 years ago when we got into this, uh, when Americans were looking for ways to get involved in sacrifice was, you know, go shopping. Uh, that's the way to, to, to kind of fight back against uh, uh, that's your contribution to the global war on terrorism is to bust out your credit card. Right. And, and, and invest in the American economy and not really to think about uh, Afghanistan. You know, we've often talked about the Korean Wars, the Forgotten War. Well, the Afghanistan War was uh, in large ways uh, forgotten uh, and abandoned. And the American public uh, polling on this from the last year about, you know, should the country should we get out? It was, it was what, 60s, 70s in, in some polls uh, in favor of this. So in a lot of ways, this has been a long time coming. Uh, and it's certainly something that has, um, uh, I think, bipartisan blame. Um, I, I would uh, I would say I think Biden was in large ways uh, locked in on this, not just from uh, the decision that the, the, the Trump administration uh, made in, in its last year to have negotiations with the Taliban to call for the release of those 5,000 prisoners, including apparently the new leader of the Taliban. Uh, uh, to, 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 to set this timetable up, which actually Biden delayed a little bit, 
uh, they were going to. Um, uh, this is this is worth this is worth mentioning that that earlier this year, Donald Trump himself had tweeted out that he that he thought that uh, we should be out of Afghanistan by March. Exactly and, right. And, and and Biden delayed it till October. Of course, now Trump is saying that he needs to resign. Um, I, you know, I am I am putting you know a lot of the blame on on Biden, but you really have to engage in some aggressive memory holing not to point out the role that Trump played, including what you're talking about here, the preparation of American public opinion. You can't wage a war or certainly win a war or sustain a war if the public is told that it's not worth fighting. And so for the last four years, rather than making the case for our engagement, uh, Donald Trump was promising to end the endless war. So, I mean, all of that plays in, you you mentioned releasing the prisoners. I'm looking at a picture here of Mike Pompeo standing next to the Taliban leader who's the new president of Afghanistan, who was released from a Pakistani prison in 2018 um, you know, with, with, with Trump's approval, I, here, here's a tweet from Donald Trump Jr. A vote for Joe Biden is a vote for forever war in the Middle East. A vote for Donald Trump is a vote to finally bring our troops home. And then links to a Breitbart story, Pompeo on Afghan peace talks. We are on a pathway to achieve zero U.S. forces in Afghanistan by spring of 2021. So, um, you know, even though we're about to go into this massive finger pointing, there's just there's so much blame to go around. That's yeah. kind of the thing that makes your head explode. Well, yeah. And, there, and there's a serious campaign uh, on, on the part of Republicans to erase that. I think the uh, the RNC um, uh, dropped a, a, a page from its website that was praising uh, Trump's uh, call for withdrawal. Uh, and and it just tried to pretend that never happened. But, you know, again, Pompeo, Trump, uh, the record is clear here. Uh, and it is a bipartisan, uh, I think, uh, commitment on this, which is you know, there was a bipartisan push to get us into uh, Afghanistan. And uh, there was a bipartisan uh, kind of acceptance to uh, to get out. And the delay that, that Biden had in pushing this back from uh, Trump's plan to get out in, in March uh, uh, to, to September shows that that kind of constant mantra we have in these forever wars that, well, if we just, you know, gutted out another six months or another year another two years, another decade, whatever, you know, uh, kick the can down the road, it'll be fine. I'm not sure any delay would have seen anything different. I think we would have had probably a a similar disarray had it happened under Trump last year, had it happened in March, had it happened in a a year from now. Uh, It just shows that uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the, the project itself was deeply flawed. I think that's hard to argue with. Of course, we'll never know. Um, I, I see Hugh Hewitt is tweeting out that if, if Trump had been reelected, none of this would have happened. Uh, well, of course, that's that's not falsifiable. Right. But clearly, you know, had we not pulled it, not not given a no conditions withdrawal uh, date, certain w- w- withdrawal, this might have been done more orderly. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's fair to say this was a this was not a winnable war, but it didn't have to be lost necessarily in this disgraceful, disastrous fashion. And I guess the larger question is: this is so stunning as a failure, as a sign of the failure of our foreign policy establishment or of the military that no one saw this or mm-hmm. they didn't anticipate it. The level of failure and incompetence here has got to rattle not just Americans, but our allies around the world going, man, you guys just completely screwed that up. Yeah, the intelligence failures here over, over with the conditions of withdrawal. Because, I mean, the, the talk about Kabul falling, you know, kind of bubbled up in the last uh, 30, 60 days in kind of mainstream accounts. But uh, if the intelligence folks didn't see this coming, that's a that's a really uh, alarming thing. And so rather than uh, 
pointing fingers about, you know, and there will be endless finger pointing here, but I think, again, all sides can point to the other. Uh, rather than dwelling on, on that part, I think maybe the most important thing here is to, A, think about what were the intelligence failures and, and how can we fix that moving forward, but also in a more immediate sense. Uh, I know Americans are, are engaged in the usual partisan finger pointing, but there are a lot of people who supported the United States in Afghanistan who have been abandoned mm-hmm. uh, and are currently scrambling, uh, literally fighting for their lives, trying to, to get out. And so I think we would all be served on all sides if we focused our attention on getting those refugees uh, out of the country, uh, even in, if it's in a holding pattern like we did where, you know, Vietnamese were uh, putting Guam before we could process their uh, their refugee status, do the same thing, move them somewhere, kind of an intermediate place where they're out of harm uh, and, and make sure that they're taken care of either uh, here or, or in an allied country. Uh, and that, I think, is the most pressing issue right now. There'll be plenty of time for finger pointing. No, I, I agree with you, but also um, th- this is a source of, for me, somewhat incandescent rage, how we did not uh, figure this out in advance. If yeah. we knew we were leaving, if we had these extra months, how did we botch this so badly? I mean, we have some stuff in the bulwark today. Uh, George Packer has a piece in The Atlantic about this uh, this this infamous betrayal. This, let me just read you this, this one um, a paragraph from uh, from one of our pieces in the bulwark. We promised we would get them out. We promised we would stand by the thousands of Afghan translators and their families as they mm-hmm. stood by our troops and American government personnel and contractors for almost 20 years. But now those those promises are in grave danger of being broken. I mean, there may be 80 to 90,000 Afghan translators and family members who are enrolled in this application process. But um, as of you know, yesterday, we'd only rescued about two thousand, which is yeah. which is really stunning. Here's here's another piece by uh, an Afghan American who writes: When Joe Biden was uh, elected, we were promised a return to normalcy. The grown-ups had come back into government, and America would wash away the stain of Donald Trump's legacy. As the Taliban took Kabul over the weekend, the return to normalcy was President Biden exhibiting the same reckless callousness we had come to expect from Trump. Which is really harsh, but this betrayal, this failure to logistically deal with this problem is kind of breathtaking because this was foreseeable. This was predicted. There were voices clamoring, don't leave these guys behind. And I wake up this morning to watching people running on the tarmac after an airplane, yeah. clinging, falling from airplanes. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> because they were going to be left behind. I mean, how did they blow this, not just from a logistical or an intelligence point of view, but from a humanitarian mm-hmm. point of view? And that that's the, those are the questions that need to be answered. Uh, and again, we can, uh, you know, the blame for the war falling apart, uh, I think, extends across uh, administrations, uh, Trump, Obama and, and Bush, especially for setting us up. Uh, but what the Biden uh, administration has control over and has a responsibility to do is to make sure those allies aren't left behind, to make sure those refugees are are resettled and taken care of. Uh, and there's there's going to be, uh, and this is, I think, is something worth remembering. I can add this as an historian. There's not a lot I can add to the actual policy discussion. Yeah. Uh, I'm not an expert. But if you look back on uh, the debates over resettling refugees, we have a memory that, oh, yes, we took care of the Vietnamese. It was deeply unpopular then. Hmm. It was deeply unpopular, you know, about two thirds, maybe three quarters of the country, depending on the polls, uh, said we shouldn't do that. Uh, And yet we did settle about 100,000, I think. 
the same thing with uh, with with Cubans. Uh, the the same thing with with other refugee groups over the over the years since then. Uh, there is always going to be some grumbling here, and yet we've had a commitment in the past to do the right thing. So I hope the Biden administration isn't you know looking at the polls on this and saying, well, this is just another divisive issue. Um, polls be damned. They need to take care of these people. No, I, I agree. And I, I noticed this morning um, there was at least one tweet from a Republican congressional candidate. I never heard of her before named Laverne Spicer. I, I, and I hope this is not a widespread sentiment, but she tweeted out, not one refugee from Afghanistan needs to come to our country. Not one. Call Qatar, call the UAE, call Saudi Arabia, call Egypt. The US and Europe took all the Syrian refugees. We can't do any more. America first means America first. And I guess Stephen Miller's tweeting out similar stuff. Oh, of course he uh, is. Yeah, because ne- never lose an opportunity to play the nativist card. Nope, nope. And again, that those tweets, I think, show where, uh, you know, a lot of this opposition comes from. It comes from uh, kind of knee-jerk nativism. Uh, and those voices, uh, as loud as they might be, uh, I think need to be ignored. Uh, uh, and and if, you're, if you're someone out there uh, opposing this, uh, you need to look at uh, who the allies on this cause are and, and, and kind of, you know, do a little soul searching and think about what do we owe to these people uh, who stood by us? Do we stand by them? So uh, just circling back to the, the fall of Saigon in 1975 and, uh, and, the, and, and the hangover that you've experienced after that, the political fallout uh, af- after that, you know, we talked about the Vietnam syndrome and how it affected um, our foreign policy. Okay, I'm going to give you a thesis and you tell me whether you agree or disagree. Yeah. My, my sense is that the post-Afghanistan uh, s- syndrome is not going to be as severe because we already have experienced it. I mean, we have already bailed on these kinds of nation building exercises. So in some ways, this is like it happened 10 years ago that we we decided that we were not going to engage in this kind of foreign, um, you know, this uh, the world's policeman type uh, activity. So that won't happen. I guess I wonder whether it plays into the domestic political narrative of things falling apart, signs of weakness as opposed to strength, that sort of thing. So it'll be, it'll be, um, you know, hammered away that this is a sign that uh, Joe Biden, who wanted to be Franklin Delano Roosevelt, instead is turning out to be more like Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are are true. I do think that we're never going to see a a shock to the system like the fall of Saigon was, because that was the big, uh, you know, kind of upending of America's post-World War II uh, confidence. Uh, There was a sense that America was, uh, you know, one of two preeminent superpowers in the globe, and and how could they be toppled or 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 stalled uh, by by a country like uh, like North Vietnam? Uh, and that was a huge shock. And also, we have to remember, you know, how invested the country was in the war. Uh, there certainly wasn't uh, the kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of home front mobilization that we saw, say, in World War II. But there was a draft. Uh, people had a real sense that this war was going to touch their lives in one way or another. And there was a real sense that it was a, um, a, a touchstone of American politics at the time. And so there were clear uh, ramifications from that. Again, Afghanistan, as you noted, is is largely forgotten over the last, uh, at least for the last decade. I, I'd argue even even more. It was quickly eclipsed by Iraq. There were stories in you know December of two thousand one that the Taliban have been vanquished, and you know we kind of turn the page and look to the next foreign adventure. That certainly uh, proved to be premature. Uh, but either way, the uh, the Afghan war was was largely uh, 
uh, ridden out of the American consciousness. So what are the political ramifications here? I, I, it's too soon to say. Uh, I don't think it'll be anything like uh, we saw after Vietnam, where there was a real um, a shock and a real reluctance uh, uh, in terms of using uh, military force, you know, it, it was really, uh, you know, Reagan and Grenada, uh, who was kind of the first uh, real adventure after. And that was, uh, you know, uh, obviously a, um, a quick and decisive war, given how, uh, how outmatched uh, the opponents were. Uh, uh, Doonesbury had a cartoon about Grenada, uh, <laughs> about all the medals that were given out. and yeah. called it the, sort of a special Olympics for the military that it was <laughs> to make everyone feel good. Um, I'm not sure that's an accurate Take yeah. on the Special Olympics, but that was the the, the line at the time. That this is just something to kind of for American stuff to flex their muscles and to, to feel better about that. And of course, it wasn't until uh, the first Gulf War under George H. W. Bush when uh, there was a real sense that the you know as Bush himself said the Vietnam syndrome has been uh, has been you know uh, kicked to the curb for once and for all. Uh, so that was a long time coming. I don't think we're going to have that kind of hangover, um, uh, specifically related to this. There may be, I think, given this and Iraq, a reluctant to get involved in uh, these kind of uh, foreign misadventures uh, writ large. I now, on the political so. angle, uh, again, too soon to say, but again, I think the, the fact that there was such a bipartisan push to withdraw, given how prominent the Trump administration uh, was in setting this up, uh, and, and how much their fingerprints are all over this, I think that the uh, uh, the political ends, there'll be people who try to exploit this, but the political ramifications should be pretty low. Uh, Biden will have to own the pictures, of course, uh, but I think the argument that the pictures would have looked different under Trump or under a different Republican uh, are pretty far-fetched. I think the people who will be swayed by that are people who have kind of already drawn uh, uh, drawn their um, uh, uh, their their place on the political map and aren't really going to be swayed one way or the other. Just I think that I, I I I think you're likely right. Um, but the 20th anniversary of 9/11 is obviously going to take place now in the shadow of this. Uh, that that and it's interesting how both Trump and uh, Biden had been fixated on doing something around 9/11. I mean, people yeah. kind of may probably be forgetting already that uh, Donald Trump famously wanted to actually invite the Taliban to Camp David on the right. anniversary of 9/11, right. which is like, hello, remember that? <laughs> and then initially, Biden had said that he wanted the deadline for the withdrawal to be 9/11 until people point out that that's that doesn't work, uh, Mr. Yeah. President. <laughs> that's yeah. really not a good. So here we're going to have the juxtaposition, unfortunately, of the pictures of the attack on the the, the, the two towers in the Pentagon um, juxtaposed with the fall of Kabul. I, and I think that's inevitable at this point. And that's, that, that can't be good for, well, that can't be good for Joe Biden. I, okay, here, here's, a, here's a thought that keeps rattling around in the back of my head. I, I was thinking of the terrible optics of that that picture that the White House released yesterday of Joe Biden sitting in an empty room behind a table. It's like, you know, it's one of those, what were you people yeah. thinking? Mm -hmm. But Joe Biden is arguably the most, the president with the most foreign policy experience that we have had in decades. Yeah. Donald Trump had the least foreign policy experience. And yet they colluded together in this foreign policy disaster. The guy that had the most experience and the guy that had the least experience, the guy that allegedly knew the most, and the guy that, that clearly knew the least. And yet they came to the same position and they both contributed to this disaster. 
Yeah, that's fair. Again, I, I, I do think Biden was largely constrained. I mean, if you look back on the coverage of, of Afghanistan six months ago as the or during the presidential transition period, a lot of it was uh, pieces noting, I think rightly, that a lot of you know Biden's uh, options were cut off, uh, that, that the, the Trump administration had set this thing up uh, in a way in which um, uh, the end game was pretty clear. Uh, and now how they handled it was was you know, obviously left up to Biden. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of, uh, you know, that experience that Biden had wasn't going to do him much good in this case because there were a lot of the options were already were already sealed off. Yeah. Uh, I, as far I, as the 9-11 anniversary, I'd just say one thing. I mean, I think sure. we'll be looking back at, at Trump and Biden in that and, and putting them in context. But I think really the part that really comes into focus here, and I think we're just starting to see it, is a reevaluation of the Bush administration, right? I mean, I think that there was a, something of a kind of Bush revival uh, uh, during the, the the Trump years, where people look back as they always do. You look back on the, especially if you're in the opposing party, you look back on the last uh, president from the uh, opposing party as not quite as bad as you remember. There was certainly a kind of burnishing of, of Bush's credentials. I think that's going to take a beating here too, and we're going to see a lot of uh, look back on on how do we get into this war uh, now that it's uh, clearly gone so wrong. Okay, so let's let's turn the page a little bit. I I, I want to play for you a tape in a little while of a, of of an American voter, which may encapsulate what we're up against in American politics. But but I thought I would ask you for a deep thought before this. And again, sure. we're not talking about the Afghanistan thing, but we are talking about the the desire for the return to normalcy. That it was this fantasy yeah. that yeah. after Trump left, that there would be a return to normalcy. That things would calm down. That our divisions would somehow become less uh, let less fiery. And I've been thinking about the period after um, after the Civil War, after mm-hmm. 1865, where you had the worst division that America ever had. All of you know, all of the bloodshed, all of the 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 anger and the passions, and. I've been reading more, not as much as you, obviously, but but reading more about uh, the years after that. And there was not really a return to normalcy for quite a long time. And I guess what I wanted to ask you about was, is there a pattern where when when you have something like this happening, that there is a certain... I don't know, level of expectation or maybe even appetite for um, a level of, of excitement and engagement and, uh, and, and panic and excitement, whatever word you want to use, that, 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 that is not easily shut off because the years after 1865 seemed like they were still hair on fire for a very long time. I mean, how long did it take America to return to normal after the American Civil War? I mean, you could argue a century. You could argue yeah. all the way back up to the Civil Rights Revolution, right? The, the so-called Second Reconstruction was what finally ended it. I mean, look, this this phrase, the return to normalcy, we get it from Warren Harding, mm-hmm. right? So let's let's look at what Warren Harding did. He came in at a time when the country was dealing with a, a, a major flu pandemic, for one thing, uh, that you know killed about a half million people, but also. World War II, economic collapse, all kinds of social turmoil from prohibition, women's suffrage. The, the country was just kind of going through a, a real series of crises in 1918, 1919. And so Harding in 1920 promised a return to normalcy. And that sounded great. People wanted the chaos to stop. They People don't like chaos. They want the calm years. The problem was you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't undo all these things. You can't magically make them go away. So Harding's own administration, this one that promised a return to normalcy, was filled with its own chaos. Uh, it had some of the greatest political scandals of the 20th century. Uh, you saw the first cabinet minister go to jail. You saw 
uh, all kinds of, uh, of tumult at, at home. Uh, it led to the economic uh, uh, crash at the end of a decade. Uh, there were all kinds of problems that came with that. You can't return to normals, right? We always want this, this kind of call to nostalgia, this call to back to the simpler times. That was the Trump motto, make America great again, right? Yeah, that the American carnage is going to go away. That's what Trump promised us uh, on his inaugural. And yet we saw a lot more uh, chaos and a lot more carnage come. Uh, so this idea that anyone could put it back in, and Biden played into this too, that anyone could put it back uh, in, in, in the bottle, uh, the genie back in the bottle, is something that just doesn't happen. Uh, we, we live in a constant state of change and chaos going forward. There's no, we always look back to the past as a simple, calmer time. It was never simple and calm at the time. They dealt with their own version of chaos then. Uh, and we uh, are unfortunately waking up to that reality today. And also, history involves an incredible amount of forgetting, which, of course, we all know. But especially as we're having these debates about race right now, I, I, I think that there was a tremendous desire to believe that we had solved all of the racial problems. Hey, we fought the uh, we fought the civil rights. Uh, I mean, sorry, we, we fought the civil war. Therefore, it's over. Uh, the The legacy of slavery is over. Okay, we passed the civil rights legislation. It is now fixed. Let Let's move on. Um, we've talked before on this podcast about the kind of memory holding of certain things. I continue to be amazed, and I wanted to get your perspective as an actual historian, on you know why people had forgotten about the Oklahoma City massacre, yeah. why the incredible racial violence in you know post Civil War, the post Civil War South, um, has has again been memory hold. Uh, I mean, I remember as a kid studying American history, and uh, the images that I can remember of from Reconstruction were cartoons of fat cat carpetbaggers. Mm -hmm. It was only when I read Ron Chernow's biography of Grant, I realized that there were thousands of African Americans who were being lynched and murdered um, on a regular basis in a very systemic sort of way during the South, during Reconstruction. I mean, one of the reasons why Grant uh, was uh, so adamant about keeping troops and using troops was because of this violence. And yet um, that seems to have been whitewashed. What was the, the whole process of Jim Crow uh, whitewashed? Uh, you know, so talk to me a little bit about how American history could have become such a selective narrative and what we can do about it, especially in light of this debate we're having now about, about you know, what we should teach about race and whether or not history should be sort of rah-rah, making people love America and all of this. Yeah, I mean, that process, is, it was a long one, but we have to remember it's a deliberate one of that whitewashing. It didn't happen by accident, right? It happened from uh, 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 people who believed um, some with maybe innocent motives, but many with malicious ones, that the racial troubles of the Civil War era of Reconstruction, of the so-called redemption period in the South when white Southerners tried to reclaim control, that all that had to be put behind us, that we had to forget about it. We had to turn the page and move on and not deal with it. That national unity could only come about again if this racial issue were put to bed, right? That's the, the birth of a nation. That's the nation that's yeah. born is the new nation in which the North and South agree. And they agree by basically um, uh, uh, kicking um, uh, African-Americans uh, and their rights uh, out to the curb uh, and and saying it's not worth fighting for, right? Uh, and, and a kind of um, um, agreement, North and South, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, that we're going to paper over these problems and and look beyond them. Um, and that sort of, uh, forgetting, 
uh, takes form. It takes form in historical scholarship of the so-called Dunning School, which uh, made a reconstruction out to be something in which looked exactly like the stories in Birth of a Nation, where reconstruction is not finally a real biracial democracy taking place in the South, but is instead tyrannical federal soldiers running roughshod over innocent white Southerners, uh, putting uh, ignorant black politicians in power who were ruinous. None of that is true. Uh, but that's the story that, that gets uh, told and a story that many people believe. John F. Kennedy came to office uh, before the civil rights movement, believing that a wildly inaccurate version of history. It becomes cemented in the public mind. All these Confederate hmm. monuments uh, that we're fighting over now, they weren't erected in the 1870s. Most of them were erected in the 19-teens and 1920s in the era of the birth of a nation, in the era of the second Klan. And they were written to rewrite history. So all these people who say these Confederate monuments, if we tear them down, were were rewriting history. No, the monuments themselves, the monuments themselves were rewriting history, right? That's the problem. And so we're undoing a false history and getting back to the truth. Now, how do we teach this, right? Um, There are people who argue that giving, and, and I hear it all the time, that if you talk about the ugly parts of the American past, it is somehow unpatriotic. Uh, I couldn't disagree with that more. Uh, a hist- uh, if you teach people that their country has only done great things, it has only had successes, you are teaching them propaganda, and you're also teaching them a fairy tale, which is going to only be a disservice to them, right? This country's history is one of, of conflict, of at times chaos, uh, and, uh, and challenges, right? And Americans at times have risen to those challenges, and beautifully so, and at other times they've not. But whether they've done well with them in the past or not, that offers us a lesson, right? That offers us a set of tools uh, that we can draw on. You can't, you know, you can't reach in the past and find the perfect analog to a problem in the present. But you can see how we in the past have dealt with problems of freedom, of justice, of equality before the law, how we've dealt with issues of America's place in the world, its responsibilities, its duties to other countries and other peoples. We can see how what's gone well and what's gone wrong. And if you are willing to look at the ugly parts as well as the good parts, you can see that full picture and you can learn from it. If you're just teaching the good, though, well, that's worse than not teaching history at all because you're setting people up with a fairy tale in which they'll find the present never lives up to their expectations of the past. And that's the key thing is it's important to understand this in order to understand what's happening now and to deal with those problems. Okay, so um, let's move to that, what we are experiencing right now. Let me take a quick break here, uh, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I want to play for you a soundbite of something that took place at a um, a board of commissioners meeting. I I, I can't locate the city at the moment. I'm guessing it's Florida, someplace in Florida, (laughs) that that I think in some ways uh, captures our particular moment. And I want to put this in some context. So we will be right back. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we are back with historian Kevin Cruz. And 
talking about. No, I think what you said about uh, the, the importance of actually honestly studying the past is, uh, is, 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 is extremely important. Because one of the questions, of course, we always ask ourselves is, have we, has, you know, what we're going through now, have we ever seen anything like it? And, I, you know, I, I, and I, and I think sometimes it's worth knowing that, yes, we have, we have gone through things like this before, but it's also valuable to say this is unprecedented. We have never seen this happen. We've never seen a sitting president, um, you know, who refused to acquiesce in the peaceful transfer of power before. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it is important to distinguish um, what we have gone through, what we have weathered or what we botched, but also whether or not we're facing something completely new. So, I mean, I mean how, how much do you look around and go, we, we've never seen this before. This has never happened in our country. Yeah, I used to joke that the, 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 the last year, oh, this is before the insurrection, the, the last year was kind of what I like to call, I'm a, a kid from the 80s, uh, disaster Voltron. Right. So we've, we've seen all of these individual problems before. You know, we had a massive uh, a pandemic uh, in 1918, 1919. Uh, we had certainly economic crises and the Depression. We had all these other issues. Right. Uh, but not all at once. Right. And that was the really uh, interesting thing about the Trump years is that it all kind of seems to happen uh, right at the same time. And we've had certainly busy years uh, full with crisis, again, right before the Harding administration was one set, the late 60s were another set. And this is another period in which we've got a lot of things on our plate at once. Uh, we've had these individual parts before, but the combination is what was really new. The new part, though, was uh, the insurrection. Uh, and that is something that, again, we've seen in small forms, again, say, in, during the, the Reconstruction and Redemption mm -hmm. period in southern states, uh, but not at this level. We haven't had the capital stormed by American citizens uh, with uh, apparent tacit or open support uh, of the then president of the United States. That's stunning. Uh, and that, I think, is something that we can't simply say, well, you know, that happened uh, and it wasn't that bad. Let's turn the page. Uh, and so I think that we're finally getting the inquiry into this uh, with, with the House Commission, uh, which will uh, hopefully uh, get to some actual facts here, because there is a temptation again uh, throughout American history to just say, "Well, we're not going to dwell on the past; we're going to move forward." You know, mm -hmm. let's 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 mm -hmm. let's turn the page. Whether it's you know uh, a Watergate, we're going to pardon Nixon, or Obama coming in during the financial meltdown, saying we're not going to really look into this too much; we're going to look forward and, and and deal with what's going on in the future. Uh, to now with Afghanistan, right? There's a constant desire on the part of, of Americans just to kind of to, to close that chapter and, and move forward. You can't move forward without dealing with the past first, right? Both in terms of the accountability of individuals, right? If you don't hold individuals responsible, say for the insurrection or for the financial crisis or for Afghanistan, whatever we're talking about, if you don't hold them accountable, guess what? They're around to yeah. make decisions in the future, right? This, you know, would seem, this would seem to be self-evident. Unfortunately, right? it's it's not, especially for a country that has a short attention span um, and a lot of historical amnesia. Yeah, it, it, it emboldens those people, it, it, those same people to stay in power and make and make uh, bad decisions again. And I think we should, you know, we're a big country. We can find other talent than these individuals who are in charge of, say, an individual corporation or, or a military operation or whatever. We can find more folks and, and have them do better. Uh, but it also says to other people, hey, if you make a mistake like this, if you make a major blunder, don't worry. There's not going to be any ramifications you, for you. You know, it's interesting. I, I've had this theory in the back of my mind um, before, sort of the, of, of, the, of the ratchet um, that – 
that, that once you uh, engage in a certain kind of, uh, say, dysfunctional behavior or unethical behavior or destroy a norm, that it's hard to, the, the, to move the ratchet back up again. So, for example, um, so much of what happens is the result of the moving of the ratchet decades before. I don't mm -hmm. think you would have had Donald Trump surviving Access Hollywood had Bill Clinton not survived Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you look back, you know, 30 years before what laid the groundwork. And I worry looking ahead, um, given what's happened in the Trump era, what are what uh, what are politicians emboldened to do? Um, what is acceptable thought? Speaking of which, I have this soundbite to play for you. Great. Um, because you know, we are at a moment now where we are not just fighting about race. We're not just fighting about foreign policy. We are now fighting about masks in school, mm -hmm. the tribalization of science, whether it's vaccines or masks. So here's a woman who uh, showed up to testify at her county board of commissioners hearing um, on the issue of mask mandates for children. And I have to warn you, there's a lot going on here, okay? I mean, she covers a lot of ground in one minute and 11 seconds. Let's play this. I'm from Oakland Park, and I'm here for the children. Good. There is zero evidence that COVID-19 exists in the world. Oh. PCR tests are recalled. This is a pandemic. Plandemic. Fake virus. Fake. Bioweapon jab. Okay. Fake president. Fake. Okay. Moving on. You will not experiment on my children children it's always been about the children mm -hmm. we know you're coming for the children uh, we will not comply okay, yeah. we only answer to god god people are waking up nothing can stop what is coming Ooh, cue. you vote yes you will all be tried for crimes against humanity <laughs> really children don't disappear oh, okay wait. Eight hundred thousand children in the united states disappear big if where true. Do they go big Human trafficking is the real pandemic. Oh. The mainstream media doesn't cover it. There's no, no virus. Wait. The media is the virus. Oh. The politicians, okay, yeah. Hollywood, are all involved. Oh, okay. Please vote no today. I'm begging you. And I want to thank you. I want you to think real hard about these children. Children. Trump won. <laughs> She showed up with this like bag, right? I mean, it's a grocery bag full of ideas. My and, God. Yeah, but where do you start with that? Except, you know what? See, I think this explains something about America. Okay, I understand that she's sort of out there. Mm -hmm. But I think it explains something that's unappreciated about American public opinion that that polls would suggest that people have sort of linear thoughts, you know, but you have yeah. to listen to people out in the wild or in focus groups to realize there's just a lot of stuff up there. Going around, yeah. pandemic, and then then there's the trafficking and Trump won, and in her mind it's a coherent whole. But man, the Venn diagram was working very hard there, wasn't it? That's a lot of overlap. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of overlap. Uh, yeah, where to begin? I mean, I want to say I, I'm going to put bourbon in this coffee. I don't yeah. know. Uh, I mean, I, I think it shows the way in which there's a certain subset. Uh, in, in America right now, and we all do this to some extent, but but this is a really remarkable one, of getting all your news from one set of sources that all have their own weird overlay of conspiracies and conjectures. Um, and this clearly comes from someone who is 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 deep in the weeds on uh, on kind of the, the oh yeah the QAnon side, uh, which has its own r remarkable and incredibly resilient. Uh, conspiracy. I mean, Donald Trump was supposed to be what reinstated on on Friday. Um, 
Uh, I missed that, but apparently, according to the QAnon people, uh, Afghanistan fell apart on his watch. So uh, congratulations. Uh, but this yeah. idea that, uh, that that the mask mandate, and that's, I think, the, the part that's drawn us into the, the clearest relief for me. I get the conspiracy theories they have, as ludicrous as they are about the election, about COVID. But this anger at schools for, you know, putting up basic safety precautions for their own children uh, yeah. is really remarkable. I was in, uh, I traveled back home to, to Nashville uh, last week, and I was there when in, in Franklin, Tennessee, just next door, uh, there was a mob of parents who were threatening the doctors yes, right. who would come to help tell them how they could keep their own children safe. And they were yeah. threatening the doctors. We know who you are. We know, we know where you live. The doctors who were trying to care for their own children. And I just find that baffling that they are that far around the bend uh, that they uh, – it's a simple paper mask. It, it's not a big deal. And, and yet it's become this, this sign of tyranny, which is insane. People are, are inclined to say, well, that person's not that person. That person is crazy. But I think this is where you have to take the, the you know, deep breath and recognize, you know, there are a lot of voters out there and these people yeah. vote and yep. they are there and they are influencing people and they are immune to information of any kind. Yeah. And that's the thing is that here we are in August of 2021, more than 600,000 Americans have died uh, from the from the, the the pandemic. And this woman is talking about it's a pandemic. Um, there's no evidence it even exists. The vaccine is a bioweapon. Mm-hmm. Kevin, there's no set of facts or arguments that you're going to be able to present to that woman that's going to break through that bubble. And the problem is, is that, look, uh, going back to this historical precedence, there have always been people who have conspiracy theorists, you know, uh, yeah. who have who indulge in all of this, you know, going back into the 50s. You had Richard Hofstadter writing about, you know, the, you know, the paranoid, mm-hmm. you know, tradition in American uh, politics back in the 1960s. But these were people who used to, you know, have, you know, old broken down typewriters and, yeah. and, 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 and wrote things all in caps or, or were sitting on the seventh seat in the, t- in, in the tavern. Now they have these vast audiences in these, these doom loops of disinformation and they are affecting public policy. I mean, the reality is you can roll your eyes and say this woman's crazy, but in places like Texas um, and Florida, these are the kind, unfortunately, the spinoffs of these kinds or the adjacent um, ideas to this are driving public policy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's madness. And I think that's exactly the right point. We've always had these conspiracy theories, but they've largely been isolated on the fringe. One of the when the internet uh, came about, we were promised, hey, this is going to be great. Everyone's going to have a voice. Everyone's going to be heard. Well, the problem is that everyone has a voice and everyone's being heard. Uh, and people who might have been isolated in their own uh, kind of siloed off conspiracy theory worlds have found a larger community out there that reflects their beliefs and amplifies them and, and reinforces them, right? And it's not just the internet. It's, you know, there are, we have to name them, radio programs, TV yep. shows, mm-hmm. uh, TV networks uh, that are fueling this and amplifying this uh, and, and giving it legitimacy. Uh, and then that then leads people to believe these things. And then the politicians point to them, well, people keep saying these things. They must be true without identifying the, the source of the problem. But it's very real. It's very prominent. Uh, and unfortunately, I think states like Texas and Florida and Mississippi, where they've kind of gone mm-hmm. down this, uh, this 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 lane, are starting to confront an ugly reality. Um, and there will be conspiracy theorists who deny the body count, but the body count, I think, sadly, is coming again. 
uh, and we're going to see uh, uh, kind of the, the harsh realities uh, of this pandemic uh, ride roughshod over the, 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 the conspiracies about masks and so on and that COVID's not real. Um, that woman doesn't want her children to be used in an experiment. Uh, I think what she doesn't realize is that her children are, are in the experiment and they're going to be the control group. Right, they're going to be the ones mm-hmm. right. uh, who the unvaccinated are going to be the ones that that are are part of this experiment and are going to suffer the worst cost. And, and what's frustrating for me uh, as a parent, I've got a ten year old who is uh, too young to be vaccinated uh, and still has mm-hmm. to mask up in school because that's the only way we can protect him, other than the people around him getting vaccinated. Uh, and luckily, we live in New Jersey where it's it's uh, pretty good. But I've got relatives and friends all down south uh, who are in a world where the vaccination rates are low and their children are being subjugated to uh, to this kind of weaponized ignorance. Uh, and so it's not just uh, I think people are saying, oh, well, the unvaccinated are about to experience this hard. Uh, that includes a lot of people who don't have a choice uh, in this matter. And so uh, a lot of these kind of selfish private decisions that are uh, made either um, maliciously or, or they've been misled. Uh, that's going to affect not just their own families and their own children, but it's going to affect all of us. Uh, and that's the real crisis here. And, 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 and of course, the obvious point being that they reject science until the moment that they actually get sick, in which case they go to the hospitals because they yeah. suddenly believe in the science practiced by the hospitals, which I don't know, I, I find um, ironic. So we've managed to go yeah. through this entire podcast, uh, Kevin, without mentioning Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> Uh, because I figured you needed a break from all of that. But, you know, speaking of alternative realities, that there are people in America that think Dinesh D'Souza is a legitimate historian. And no matter how many times he is humiliated or fact-checked or discredited, it doesn't seem to matter. So there's a a certain shamelessness to to the misinformation too, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And again, when I, you know, and I, uh, and one of many historians who push back against him on, on Twitter, when we do that, we're not thinking we're ever going to convince Dinesh. We're hoping people on the sidelines. But I also don't think I'm going to convince Dinesh's diehard fans. Uh, they are, have bought into him because he's telling them what they want to hear. Uh, he's telling them that, that their side is 100% pure and right and clean, and everything bad has happened on the other side. And if anyone is telling you that, liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, they're telling you a, a load of lies. Look, we can go back to our discussion on Afghanistan. If you're going to say uh, this problem has only to blame for one party, one person, one group, uh, you're missing a lot of the picture, and you're probably being lied to. But as we've found out, there are a lot of people who like being lied to and are willing to pay for that privilege. And a lot of, and a lot of people want to just stay in their safe spaces on, on, bo- on both the left and the right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Kevin Cruz, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast on this Monday in which the world is burning. So I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. I think, Charlie, I think we worked everything out. We've solved it all. So congratulations to us. I wish, but because I still have to do four more podcasts this week, so <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have to leave something for the, re- right. the, the rest you, of you the week. You can pretend we didn't solve it. That's fine. That's fine. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.